Hello and welcome to Navigating Nursing. I am your host, Laura Whitehead, a registered adult nurse, a critical care nurse, qualified lecturer and fellow of the Higher Education Academy. And I'm joined today by Dr Anna Valdez, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Nursing at Sonoma State University. Thank you so much, Anna, for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Um, So I'm going to take you right back to the beginning of your career. Why did you pick nursing? Why did you decide you wanted to be a nurse? Well, it's an interesting and not terribly short story. Um, But when I was 16 years old, I got pregnant with my daughter. And at the time, um, going to school pregnant was not really a viable option. So I dropped out of high school in my junior year of high school. And um, I was pregnant with her probably about six or seven months pregnant, not sure what to do. Um, I'm a first gen college student, didn't even know if college was an option for me, but trying to figure out how I was gonna be able to support this child um, because I really didn't have any help. And um, I opened up the newspaper on a Sunday and where I am in my local area, the newspaper is the Press Democrat. And there was a whole page article about the licensed vocational nursing program at Santa Rosa Junior College. And it had a picture of the students and it talked about them um, being from um, groups that are racialized as non-white, being um, living in poverty, uh, first-gen college students. And I looked at that and I was like, well, that's like me. So I could do that. And it talked about how much um, money they made when they first got out of school, which I figured would be enough to support my, um, my daughter. And I went to the college, freshly turned 17 with my daughter, about four weeks old, and said, you know, I'd like to enroll for this program. And the counselor said, well, you know, the registered nursing program is only a semester longer. Maybe you should do that. And I said, well, okay, because I I didn't know. Um, And so I started doing my pre-nursing prerequisites. And um, I was young, but very smart and was able to get into nursing school on my first try and kind of the rest is history. Um, But I think the lesson for me is that you can't be what you can't see. It didn't occur to me that I could be a nurse before I saw that newspaper ad. Wow, well done to the newspaper ad. Um, yes. <laughs> what a change. And to be honest, that's one of the reasons for the podcast, really. You can't be what you can't see. If you don't know it's out there and if you don't know that people are from where you're from or from your background or or anything, you know, from any perspective, um, it's hard It's hard to see yourself or impossible to see yourself in, in that particular provision or career, yes. um, really. So you've got multiple degrees and you've also got a PhD. Did you know very early on in your career that that further study um, was something that that you were interested that that was what you wanted to do? Yes. By the time I graduated from nursing school, I knew that was something I wanted to do. At the time, my daughter was just turning five and going to kindergarten. So I knew that it wouldn't be right then that I needed to earn some money and then go back to school. So um, I later had my son. And when my son started kindergarten um, and I was in I was probably about 30 years old at that time. I decided to go back to school and I started with my bachelor's. And now you can get a bachelor's usually within about a year after graduating with an associate degree in nursing. But at that time you couldn't. So I had to do two and a half years to get my bachelor's. And then I got my master's and PhD. And I just went all the way through because I knew that I wanted to have a PhD. And um And I was used to working full-time 12-hour shifts as an emergency nurse and going to school. And I figured if I took a break, I was going to remember what it was like to not be in school full-time and working full-time. So I just went straight through. 
that I knew I'd want to teach one day. And how did you, I was going to say, how did you manage the juggle? That you had a juggle on children, work and study. How, how, how did you, how did you do that? Yeah, I did it because it's what was needed to be done. I grew up without a lot of resources and in sometimes really challenging situations. So I learned young to just do what has to get done. Um, and so people ask me all the time, like, how did you do that with young children? And I was coaching basketball for my son's team and going to wow. work and, and all of that. And one of the things I did in terms of real advice for listeners is that I really carefully scheduled my days. Um, I knew I could not do homework after a 12 and a half hour shift in the emergency department. I just yeah, can't no, focus at that point and you're tired. So I made a schedule every week of everything I needed to do, including my study time. Uh, because it's really hard when you have, have a partner and children who are like, hey, we want some time too, right? Mm -hmm. So that they could see when I'd be done. It was really helpful because, you know, my kids would come to my room, which is where my, you know, my desktop was and say, um, okay, it's 730 and your study time is up. Um, and, and that was helpful to me. Um, and I think also, you know, explaining to my family that this would be life-changing for us, right? Because it would open more doors and opportunities. And my son very much wanted me to be home at dinner time, okay, um, which is seems... hard to do our shift. So I promised the ability to be home at dinner time, which I kept that promise. Good promise. And I think the, the timetable I guess, and people knowing when you're done, otherwise, I guess you've got people constantly going, are you finished yet? Or mom, what about this? Or whatever right. you know whatever they want where if that's exactly at half past seven I'll be finished and then there is that time yeah that's quite a and I just had them do their homework at the same time that I was doing my homework most of the time so yeah um, so everyone was studying at the same time yeah efficient so you're saying you worked in the emergency department were you always drawn throughout your training to working in in that kind of emergency situations and, and the accident and emergency side yeah, from my first semester in um, nursing school, when I decided to go to nursing school, I very much thought I was going to be a labor and delivery nurse. Okay. That was my goal. That's what I was interested in. I really liked working with babies and moms. And in my first semester of nursing school, we were in a small kind of rural hospital, um, which was not a trauma center, but it was, um, the census was low. And so there weren't enough student, you know, patients for all of the students. So my teacher sent me down to the emergency department, which really was like a four bed ED, very small rural. And within about 10 minutes of being there, an elderly person with a gunshot wound to the back of his head came in. Wow. And um, so we all went to the, to the, you know, the critical care room, wasn't really a trauma room. And I remember my, my instructor came running down the hall and looked at me and saw me there at the head of the bed helping the respiratory therapist and kind of mouthed are you okay and I smiled and said yes and she like slowly backed out of the room but she was there to pull me out because she didn't mean to expose me to that in the first semester mm -hmm. but um, I tell people often it was the first time in my life that I felt like I really belonged somewhere um, you know most of my life before that, I just didn't ever feel like I belonged in any environment. Um, and so I knew immediately that I had a love and passion for the emergency department. And emergency nursing is really um, the bulk of the, the clinical work that I've done. I've done a little bit of pediatric ICU, a little bit of ICU. 
Um, and I've done a little bit of time with a flight company, but most of the time it's been in the emergency department. Um, and I love it there. I would still be working in the emergency department if that was possible for me. And I was going to say, I think quite a lot of it's quite common for a lot of students that they do a placement in area or maybe they didn't know they'd enjoy it it wasn't something that was on their radar and they get there and it's like this is it but in that belonging way that you said I think belongings are really is a really key I had the same thing with intensive care when I was a student and it was like I walked in it was like yes this is yes this is my space I know what to yeah, do here this is my I'm space mm. and, and even most if... of my students changed their minds throughout school you know I think many start with an idea um, and I tell them, you know, you're going to get a chance to try on a lot of different roles and, and see what suits you. So it's not, it's pretty common for me to see students from the beginning of nursing school to the end who have changed where it is that they want to practice. Mm. And even um, we've got quite in the UK, there's a lot of rotational posts when people are qualified. So they might do three months, four months, maybe up to six months in different areas all around different kind of large teaching hospitals. And they find they're like, oh, this area was always going to be for me I loved it and then they go somewhere else he's like no actually um I've completely changed my mind so right. I think we're lucky in that in in nursing aren't we that we've got that variety we've got that scope to move around and change our mind absolutely I think it's one of the real gifts of being a nurse is that um, when things change in your life or what you like changes, there are opportunities. You don't have to necessarily go back to school unless you're going to take an advanced practice role. You can just choose to be in a different environment and learn different things. For me, it's really been a blessing because at about the time that I went back to school um, to get my bachelor's degree, I was diagnosed with lupus. And I knew it was hard working in the emergency department with lupus. Yeah. And I knew that I would not be able to do that for the long term. So being mm -hmm. able to then pivot and go to school and learn how to teach and be a teacher so that I can continue to practice as a nurse um, was really a gift. And were you drawn to education or were you drawn to teaching um, right from the early on? Or was it something that kind of evolved throughout throughout your um, academic kind of progress? Um, I, not until I got into school. I liked being a preceptor. I enjoyed that, particularly with paramedic students. Um, I don't know why, but that was my favorite thing to do. Um, and then when I got into graduate school, into my master's program, it was a mix between leadership and education. And I fell in love with teaching. And I taught clinically um, probably the first almost 10 years that I taught, I was an emergency department ICU educator. Um, and then I, I moved into academia, which is very different. Very different. How did you find, how did you find the change? Um, it was an adjustment. I think it is for a lot of people who come from clinically based positions into academia. Um, it was a little bit hard in that I didn't feel like an expert anymore. Mm. Um, before I found I really exactly the like same thing. Yeah, I felt like I was an expert and that I knew what I was doing. I was incredibly comfortable and suddenly I was really uncomfortable because navigating academic environments and the policies and the way in things, uh, which things are done is very, very different. And um, the first year was kind of hard. There were a few times when I was like, no, I'm just going to go back to what I know, um, because also in the emergency setting and even as an educator I worked like you know if we were busy I worked on the unit 
you can have somebody come in and you can make them feel better right away. And then you get that instant reward, right? That kind of boosts your self-esteem and that feeling of having done a good job. Those take a lot more time in education. Those moments where you look at something and go, I did a good job here. Um, so for me, that was a big change too. Not only feeling like a fish out of water, but like not seeing the the work product of what I was doing and how it actually was also important for somebody's life. It took me a little while to get into that mode. Um, and now that I'm there, it's very comfortable. It wasn't in that first year. And I think I've spoken to a new, some new lecturers recently and they found it a really big knock to their confidence of, and it's like, oh, but I'm a really good nurse. I'm really good clinically. I'm really good at whatever the area of speciality is. And it's like, it's a totally different it's a totally different job isn't it it's a totally it um it's a totally different skill set in lots in lots of ways yes absolutely it's very very different and the other thing that was interesting to me is and i see this a lot now with new educators there's really this idea that it's an easy job mm, right yeah. like you can move from clinical which no doubt working 12 hour shifts in the ed is hard work. Um, and I am not physically experiencing that in my role. But um, a lot of new educators often say to me, I thought it, this was going to be a lighter load. This is a lot, yeah. especially in the first two years where you're learning how to now practice in this totally new environment. Um, but the work never goes away. You know, when I was in the emergency department, when you asked how I could do it, when I hung up my stethoscope, I was done. Yeah. Um, certainly I've had traumatic experiences that carried with me. Um, but for the most part, my day was done. And as a nurse educator, your day is never done. Yeah, completely agree. And I think as well, yeah, even if you stay late for your shift, even if you have an awful shift you're right that stays with you all that's on your mind it's I did everything I could in that 12 and a half hours or, or however long you ended up staying later where this is it's called yeah it's that constant oh oh what about this or oh, what about that email or what about that lesson I think that's that's something that maybe isn't considered and also if you've never had a job like this you know I always said I would never work in an office I would never have a desk job a, a lot of this job is office based isn't it it is email it, it is, is communication it is marking um and maybe isn't something that's that that you've ever done before or that you've known about yeah. yes it is it's very different I didn't think I would work in an office either but here I am but here we are so with your PhD did you find you said that you know you constantly studied that you didn't take that break that you kind of moved from from all the way from you know from your degree to the master's to the to the PhD were you clear about your topic or your area of interest right at the beginning or was that something that evolved as you studied um, I was fairly clear. I certainly knew what my topic would be. At the time, I was an EDICU nurse educator, um, and I knew that it was going to be based on emergency education. Um, my PhD is in special studies in education. It's nursing education. Um, so I knew that I would be working on something that was pertinent to nursing education. Um, and one of the things that I I felt at the time was as a ED educator, there's so much that should and could be taught. But because education is not revenue generating, there's really a limited budget in most facilities that have nurse educators, right? And so I really had to prioritize what I was asking to be able to teach and take time with nurses. And I wanted to 
kind of project how that might look. I've always been interested in looking forward. So I did a rather complex study, but basically I used nursing experts from around the world to project what they felt the major societal issues in the next 10 years would be that would impact the emergency setting and then what they felt like were the priorities for emergency nursing education. Um, and it was very interesting. And I had chose to do it mixed method with the Delphi approach because I could come up with a survey and say, here are all these topics in emergency nursing. I'm an experienced uh, emergency nurse educator. Can you guys prioritize them? Um, but I wasn't sure that my list would be what everybody else's list would mm -hmm. be. And I was really glad I put it out there because the number one most important focus that people felt was needed was not on my list. Um, and so interestingly, and it should have been on my list, but I just didn't think about it. So the number one was critical thinking. Um, and I, you know, I focused more on things like pediatric trauma, mm -hmm. triage, you yeah, know, the actual right, rather than the process of thinking. So, um, so I did know that it would be focused on emergency nursing education. Um, and I would say about halfway through my PhD program, I knew exactly what I was going to do. Um, and then the challenge was, as I was developing my proposal and stuff, not to talk to anybody about, hey, you're an expert, I'd love you to be in my study. Yeah, it's more. And this, this um, podcast series is focusing on leadership roles and education. So we've spoken about education and your journey through your career. What advice have you got for anyone who's in a leadership role? You know, I think first that nurses have to broaden their idea about what a leadership role is. I think all nurses really serve in a leadership role in one way or another. Um, and then, you know, leadership is very different depending on the setting, right? If you're a nurse manager versus a chief nursing officer versus, um, you know, a a department chair like I am in academia. So I think um, the advice varies some, but most importantly, I think for me as a leader is knowing the people whom you work with as human beings, right? Not just for what it is that they're hired for or what their role is or what they're expected to do, but who they are as human beings um, and, and really developing care and concern for people um, and being kind, right? Like I think a lot of times we are unkind about things that really there's no, there's no reason to be unkind. Um, and I think when people feel truly valued and supported that they work really hard and mm -hmm. they are happy to come to work and productivity is better. So rather than trying to push people on what it is that you want them to do, um, being with them and being um, caring and being concerned. Like when I was emergency department manager, there were scrubs on the back of my door and I frequently put those scrubs on and went out and worked because that's what was the highest priority at the time. And I know that's not possible for all nurse leaders, but I think ultimately understanding the people you work with and being kind, um, having very clear expectations so that people know where they are, being honest, uh, and you know, not being doing things that we unfortunately see show up, like being petty or talking to other people about the people you work with. Um, you know, I think really having 
good empathy and understanding and a shared vision um, for where it is you're going makes a big difference because if people don't share that with you you're it's not going to happen no and also if they don't know what that vision is they don't know what that priority is um yeah it's not going to happen because you haven't got a shared goal right well and you know one of the things that happens in nursing a lot is leadership or a team with leaders on it make decisions about nursing practice changes within their work environment without really um, engaging or having those discussions with the nurses who are going to be affected and who are doing that direct care and we respond to that because of you know accreditation requirements or regulatory requirements oh now we have to do this Um, but nurses are not included in that decision so unintended consequences are not addressed but also because they're not included they may not fully understand why we're making this change what the evidence is to support it um, and you know it just feels like extra work right instead of or change in work by people who don't understand the work that I'm doing and so it's hard to move forward with change in those circumstances um, and you know you can save a lot of time too if we sit down and we in a shared governance kind of way and say here's the problem we have to get our catheter associated infections down right we are not being reimbursed for it this is causing harm to our patients and here's a whole bunch of evidence on things that are effective in doing that let's talk about what would work here and um, what your thoughts are about how do we implement this how do we roll this out then you have informal leaders who are actually doing the work, who can share with their colleagues who are not on whatever committee or shared governance, hey, this is gonna be coming, this is why we're doing it, this is the impact it's gonna have on our patients, this is the impact it's gonna have on the organization. So people are going, oh yeah, that's gonna take me a little bit more time, but I get why it needs to happen. And also you've then got ownership over that change if you've been part of that process. Right, that, that, that the change in my practice was informed by me. And unfortunately in nursing, um, oftentimes our practice is not being dictated by us. Mm. Um, you know, even if you look at the future of nursing report um, and no shade to the people who did that work, I think there's some really important content in there, but over half of the people on that panel were physicians. Mm. Right. And so physicians don't allow nurses to guide their practice. You know, I was going to say we would never have. Imagine having like a, a physician. In your yeah, that would it, never, ever. Right. Um, but but we allowed that to happen. And, you know, our practice is often dictated to us by um, regulatory agencies or legislation or accrediting bodies rather than us taking ownership of that. And we are the largest workforce in the world. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why we cannot set our own practice standards. There's no reason why we can't say that things that are not working that are harmful to us or the people who we accompany and care need to stop happening we have that power Mm, we've Um, forgotten about the power yeah but unfortunately one I think nurses um I think it's intentional that you know 
um, nurses are extracted from. And when you are working very hard and, you know, working 12 and a half or however many hours you have to stay there and um, just bone tired when you leave, you're not thinking about, you know, being unified and rallying and doing this extra un work, uh, you know, unpaid work. Um, but really that's where we have to get to. We have to get to a place where we no longer oppress each other yeah. where we're no longer focused on what degree you have, what research you've done, what book you helped write or any of those things, but we see the expertise at all levels of nursing mm -hmm. and that we are together mm -hmm. and say, this is what our practice is gonna look like in the next 10 years. And these are the things that we're gonna do to make that happen. And again, no shade to the future of nursing report. I was very pleased to see a, a significant focus on health equity and nurse wellness. Um, but that, how might that document have been different if it was all nurses from multiple um, areas and levels of uh, experience and education? Mm, pretty different. And I think you're right. I think too much nursing everywhere we're looking in aren't we it's you're right the qualifications or what you need you should have had this experience before you did that course you shouldn't work in academia unless you've done x y and z we're, we're so it's infighting almost isn't it it's it's so and actually we need to turn around and, and look and yeah and set those standards and, and set what we want going forward yeah I, I i agree and um you know, I often say I am not Florence Nightingale's biggest fan. I know she's got a beautiful museum where you all are. Um, and I, you know, I certainly a lot of people attribute her as like kind of the mother or founder of nursing, mm -hmm. which is absolutely untrue. Nursing existed for, you know, centuries before that. And mm -hmm. there are many indigenous ways of knowing and care that was being provided. And most of the care was in the home. And so her big legacy was moving nursing into the hospital, which I don't know was good for nursing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can't really, I don't have a strong feeling one way, but certainly I think the focus on hospital nursing is problematic because it focuses on managing ill people mm -hmm. rather than keeping people well. But I think one of her other legacies, and this is not to undo the work that she has done, but one of her legacies is um, a legacy of exclusion and elitism, right? Um, the reason why she was heard and allowed to move forward with establishing the practice of nursing is that she was a white woman who was wealthy from a good family and yeah. college educated, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and wrote letters to Queen Victoria. So it ticks, it ticked all the boxes, didn't it? It, it, it did, right? And so her move was to really formalize nursing um, and to make it exclusionary. And it was very exclusionary when she was there. We know that, for instance, she, she didn't allow, based on Mary Seacole's account, Mary Seacole to participate with her in the Crimean War, um, but also from her writings, you can, you can see that. And unfortunately, I think as we've embraced this idea of of continuing to raise nursing as a profession, that we've taken a very exclusionary um, approach, right? You, you get to do this if you have this experience and this education, you get to do this mm -hmm. if you have um, this or that. And some of that's important. Certainly, I don't want somebody being my certified nurse um, an ethicist who has not been trained in that, embedded in that, right? So, you know, certainly there's value in that, but but largely I think it, it has set up a system where we oppress each other, 
We don't need any other group to oppress us. We oppress each other in terms of saying when you are good enough or qualified enough or important enough to be, uh, uh, you know, at this level um, or to be deemed to be here. So I think that's an area where we need to work. Uh, you know, even when you look at the American Nurses Association, vocational nurses who or practical nurses who are licensed nurses are not allowed to participate. And I think when we get it together to say, we are all nurses, we all contribute in meaningful ways, we are all experts in one area or another, and this is what we're going to do with our practice. Mm -hmm. This is what it's going to look like. Yeah. And when you directly compare, I was talking about advanced practice within the UK and kind of different advanced nurse practitioner roles. And when you compare to the clinical skills that, you know, we've got nurses that have been nurses for 10 years that are on a master's program that are, when we compare to what medical students can do automatically, you know, they come along and in the UK, they can do an ABG, you know, was it C1, learn one, do yeah. one, see one. Yeah, and watch, just, one uh, watch one, do one, teach one. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah. And you, and you think in nursing, it's, well, you've got to have done your master's and have worked for 10 years and done this. And we've got medical students who in their third years are going around doing ABGs right. on one hand, but then we've got nurses with all, you know, that that are so better placed to be carrying out those skills, but yes, have got to have got to follow this process. It's, it's interesting how, yeah, at th those differences between, between the two professions. And I completely agree with you saying about Florence Nightingale. And I think especially the introduction of that hierarchy and that you're in, you're a nurse and you're in this box this is where you're allowed and and I think particularly when we look at that nurse doctor relationship and that working together and that collaborative approach I think it's very apparent especially in the intensive care I've I, I've worked in in trauma it's very fluid it's who's got an opinion who's the most experienced who's the most knowledgeable obviously with input from you know the neurosurgeons the trauma surgeons whoever you know whoever's got that but my opinion is not worth any less because I'm a nurse over the doctor that's come to do the ward round the registrar it's a complete and then in other areas there's such a oh no you nurses can't allow to go on the ward rounds they wouldn't that you'll just read the notes after i agree and when you think about that like for example you know what we expect of people before they can do something or mm -hmm. um or you know fill a certain role those are all internally mm -hmm. placed requirements right those are all barriers or gatekeeping that we do within our own um, culture as a nursing profession, right? And we don't have to do that. We can choose to do different. I had, I do research. It's not my primary role, but I do research. I've done several studies and I really like research. And a, um, a mentor whom I love, and this was very well intentioned on their part, when I had written on one of my papers that I was a nurse scientist said, oh, oh no, I wouldn't put that there because you've not had an NIH grant funded um, study and therefore people will balk at that. And, um, and that person wasn't trying to be harmful or hurtful to me, but that is really the experience that they've had, right? And mm -hmm. So while I have multiple degrees of science um, and I have, you know, contributed to new evidence and knowledge because I haven't ticked this box, mm. I can't call myself a scientist. And that's the thing we do within nursing um, that I, I don't fully understand why we do that. No. And that leads me nicely on to what advice have you got for any student nurses or newly qualified nurses at the moment? You know, um, 
I think probably the most important advice I can give nursing students and newly qualified nursing students is to prioritize themselves first, beginning in nursing school. I learned some of that in nursing school, but didn't take it seriously. And part of it has to do with our culture, right? Even if you go back to Florence's writings, you know, you are supposed to work yourself to the bone mm -hmm. until you fall down. And, um, you know, for as long as is needed to do whatever, and that's how you're deemed a good nurse. Mm -hmm. And so with this desire to be a quote unquote good nurse, I think that nurses often sacrifice their own wellness, um, their own mental health, their own physical wellness, um, what is needed in their life because of altruism and, you know, this commitment to being seen as a good nurse. And what I would say is throw that out, right? Perform the standard of care. Do well for the people you accompany and care, but take care of yourself first. I think many nurses come to the nursing profession um, because maybe they're somewhat codependent or they have cared for other people. Um, and so they come with this altruism of serving other people, but you can't serve other people if you're not okay. And it's very heartbreaking to me to see the number of nurses who leave nursing in the first year or two of the profession um, because you know, they get eaten up as soon as they get into the profession. So um, when I was a young nurse, I didn't have any boundaries. I wouldn't even known what a boundary was to tell you what that Thanks. is. Um, and so what I would say to them is, know and develop your boundaries and stick to them. And don't worry if somebody makes you feel like you're not a good nurse because you're not gonna stay for that extra six hours to help out or whatever it is. Um, and you know, for me in the emergency department, because it's a very similar experience to you where we're all a team, don't allow the feeling of like, oh, I don't wanna let my friends down because or my coworkers down. Um, if you physically can't do that, don't push beyond that, right? And so really clearly say, this is what I will do and this is what I won't do. And um, if you're not familiar with boundaries, get some work around that. See a therapist, go online, read about boundaries, some great books out there. That's how I learned. Um, and make sure that you set those so that you are taken care of and you can survive in what is a very, very difficult job. And I think... Something that I've learned is no one's going to take care of you. You've got to be the one that makes sure. And if you come in for that shift, no one's going to go, oh, well, you worked an extra four hours yesterday and you didn't have a break and you didn't go to the toilet and you didn't drink any water. They're going to go, you're here at 8 a.m. Right. Off you go. Or, you know, you made that mistake or there was this error. No one's going to look at the content, you know, oh, but the day before or oh, it was your last shift of four. It was, this is what happened in your practice at this. Yes, Absolutely. And I also think part of why um, new nurses leave is moral distress. You know, when you are not able to provide the level of care you've been taught to provide, when you're not able to do what you've been taught is the standard and what the evidence supports because of staffing or the acuity of patients or whatever the situation is, there's a moral distress that goes with that, right? Um, and I think that begins to eat away at us too in this concept or idea of being a good nurse. Um, and yet I'm not able to do it. And so, you know, I, for me, my last day in the emergency department, I quit that day. 
Now, I'm not saying that's good practice, right? So I'd been an emergency nurse for 20 years, and I knew at that point that I was going to be done working in the ED, but quitting with no notice is not something that I generally advise other folks to do. But I was working as a travel nurse just for the summer because I was teaching. Um, and mind you, I was a very experienced, 20 years, very board certified. I knew what I was doing. And I was in the emergency department in California where I live, we have um, ratios and the normal ratio is four to one in the emergency department. I did in fact have four patients, but all four of them were critically ill or one that was not critically ill was unmanageable um, because he had encephalitis. He was trying to climb over the, you know, and it was like yeah, over the side rail and we, we didn't, we had a no restraints policy and, you know, he was like six, six and 220 pounds and all I could do that shift um, was keep my patients as safe as possible mm -hmm. right not provide them the level of care that they needed but just keep them from falling out of bed from hurting themselves or hurting somebody else and it was so overwhelming that when I walked out to my car I cried and I sat there in my car and cried for about an hour because the moral distress of not having provided, you know, from the child I was caring for to the elderly man who I was caring for, the care that I believed that they needed and not being able to get any help, right? I repeatedly mm -hmm. asked for help. Um, I wouldn't just take that on and be like, okay, well, I'll do yeah, my I'll best. Do. I know I can't do it, right? I repeatedly asked for help and wasn't helped. And I don't know if that was because I was a traveler or if people were genuinely just as overwhelmed as me because I, you know, I just didn't know, but I knew I wasn't going to do that again. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was at a place in my life when that was a decision that I could make, but newer nurses are going to have those experiences. And so one of the things I'd like them to learn about moral courage and being able to speak up, but also think about and maybe even role play or practice how you will address those kind of situations when you're not able to meet the standard of care. Um, I think that's a great thing for nursing schools to be doing, too, is to you know, have some role playing and teaching around civility and setting boundaries and being safe. Um, both yourself physically, but keeping your, your patients safe as well. I think that's an area where in nursing education, we can do a better job of preparing new nurses where you're already feeling not empowered, mm -hmm. right? A student nurse speaking up is terrifying, totally terrifying. Um, right? And likely not to happen, but also the same is true for new nurses. When I became a new nurse, the expectation was that I would prove that I deserve to be there. Not that I would be helped, not that I would be nurtured, not that I would be supported and guided, but that I had this short window of time to prove I deserve to be here. We have to change that, mm -hmm. right? We, just because that's how we were treated doesn't mean that that's how we should treat new nurses, right? We want to grow them. They're going to take care of us. We want to help them, nurture them, pour love and knowledge into them. Um, you know, get up and help them carry the load if it's too hard. So I think we have a lot of work to do with nursing, but until that is done for new nurses and student nurses, make sure you're really clear on what's acceptable to you and what's not. Don't allow people to speak too disrespectfully. Don't, you know, if your assignment is not safe, then protest that assignment. Um, you know, find what it is that you can do to protect yourself and 
um, to be well. And I don't mean to say all of that to scare your new nurses that are going to be listening. Um, it's really hard, especially right now. Staffing is very hard. There's a shortage. Um, at the same time, I've been a nurse for 30 years. I could not imagine doing anything else. I have loved it. I have gained so much from it. And I think why I say I, I really want them to have boundaries is I want them to have that as well where they feel rewarded, they feel that they've done a good job, they feel like they've made an impact without feeling like they have to sacrifice their wellness to do that. And also to have that, if someone wants that longevity of career, you know, to, to remain and to have that to have that span rather than not the one, two years of a terrible experience and then leave because it's not, it's not, you can't maintain that. Right, exactly. Let's, as a profession, change our practice so that our new nurses are not feeling like they can't sustain this, mm. right? So that it is a profession that they see themselves doing for the rest of their working years. Mm. That's got to be the big aim, hasn't it? Yes. And I think particularly around boundaries and speaking up, I was awful at saying no. Anyone that anyone are for years, you know, oh, do you mind doing this? Or do you even, do you mind going for the late break? And you'd be like, no, no, I can have lunch at 6 p.m. That's totally fine. And and it took a really long time to learn that no one's ever going to go, actually, no, that's not fair. Or actually, Laura's done that five times, 10 times, 20 times in a row. Actually, that's not, that's not right. And and yeah, learning the power of, of no, and that that's okay, that you can say, no actually I'd prefer to go at one or no I can't do that overtime shift or actually yes I have to leave on time I need someone to hand over to um, right a bad thing yes it's not a bad thing and there may be people who balk at you or side eye you and like well you know Anna's not Anna's not carrying the load as much as the rest of us but you can't be responsible for other people not setting their boundaries right yeah. you can't waive your boundaries and what you need for wellness because other people are not doing so you just have to be secure in that mm. and um, at the end of the day it doesn't really matter right if you're well and you have been able to stay in a profession that you love that's the important thing it's not the important thing if nurse Nancy thinks that um you know that you're not you're not a good nurse because you didn't stay for another four hours yeah and you didn't take your lunch break because back then no one had a lunch break you didn't eat I don't, right. know how, I don't know how food happened but um right there's a break room with some food in it and when you went to the bathroom you shove something in your mouth if you get a chance <laughs> to use the toilet right yeah yeah that's the yeah. um but and where do you see yourself in the future? Where do you see your the rest of your career going? So I am very blessed to be in the job that I think I will retire from. Um, I won't continue as chair forever, um, largely because, you know, I, I like it just fine and I work with amazing people, but I really very much like being in the classroom and in mm -hmm. clinical with students. So probably another year or two, I'll resort back to teaching at least most of the time um, with less administrative stuff. I recently, I'm a journal editor. So currently I'm the journal editor for teaching and learning and nursing, which I'll be able to pass over to a wonderful new editor. Um, and I am going to be the journal of emergency nursing editor, which is something I have wanted to do for 20 years. Oh, and of course, exciting. I was not prepared 20 years ago. I've worked very hard to be prepared. Um, and so I'm at a place where I'm not really trying to climb to the next position or 
or um, get to someplace else. I'm at a place where I really want to enjoy and thrive in where I am. Um, and I see this as an opportunity. I very much love emergency nurses. They are my people, my family. I loved being in the emergency department. And it is very hard to be a nurse, but also an emergency nurse right now. So I hope to use that platform to really support nurses um, and make sure that they have what they need for clinical practice. Um, and frankly, uh, you know, I'll probably do that as long as they allow me to continue doing it because I'll love that so much. But I'll probably retire in another five years while I'm still fairly young. I'll be 57, um, certainly by the time I'm 60, because I have lupus. And the older I get, the more challenging that becomes for me. And I, I really want some time in my life where I'm not working or I'm only doing what I choose to do, you know. I want to be on the, you know, in the water snorkeling or reading books or um, doing things that are meaningful to me. So that's kind of, I'm in the place where I'm looking ahead to a time where, um, where I am the, the focus and what I want to do is the focus. What you want to do. Well, that sounds amazing. And thank you so much for giving all of your advice and really going through your career to all of my listeners. So thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to talk to you.